Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. Now, the clashing of art and politics is nothing new, nor is it banished to the cobwebs of history. From the censorship of great Italian masters by the Catholic Church in the 16th century to the hurling of the slave trader Robert Colston's statue into Bristol Harbour during 2020's Black Lives Matter protests, art is, and always has been, ingrained with questions of power. On today's programme, we're delving into this relationship and the knotty questions that crop up as a result with Farah Nayeri, an arts and culture writer for the New York Times and host of the Culture Blast podcast. Her new book, Takedown, Arts and Power in the Digital Age, looks back centuries across Europe and America and throughout the art world. It draws on some sensational uproars and scandals to explore the reckoning of the Western world with politics, capitalism, religion, race, gender and art. No biggie, Farah. Welcome to the programme. Lovely to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much, Rob. I, I'm delighted to be here. And I have to say that was a fantastic summary of my book, much better than I'm able to summarise it. So I'll keep that. We'll take one for the team there. And, and a big tick in the box for Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, producer of the programme, for that. Thank you, Sophie. Um, it's, uh, so it's, it's a funny thing. The tables have been turned. As the, as the host of Culture Plast, coming on Monocle on Culture, it is an honour to have you around the desk here at Studio One. And the I wanted honor, to... The honour is mine, Rob. <laughs> yeah. This is good. I like the, the back-scratching se- se- section of the programme has <laughs> gone into overdrive. So tell us a little bit about your introduction to the world of art. And I guess an ex- as an extension of that, when you started to realise um, that your art education had been ingrained with sort of power dynamics... I guess I got my introduction to the world of art in my uh, teens, uh, early teens when I moved to Paris. And uh, uh, culture and art, as you know, in Paris are absolutely everywhere. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone goes to exhibitions. Everyone talks about them. And there's less of a kind of social class thing about it. It is a kind of thing that is kind of almost universally discussed. And so there I was in the middle of this city where culture was really very, very key. And I, of course, I'm, I'm a classical musician. I mean, culture and art have always been an intrinsic part of who I am and I'm also a writer of course and and so of course I was all too happy to be in Paris and I'd always dreamed of living there so it was like dream come true and it's a good place to start when we're talking yeah. about when we're talking about these subjects it's a good place to dip the toe in exactly right? into yeah. the fast flowing waters yeah, yeah exactly and because I'd lived in the Middle East and North Africa previously I'm from Iran I'd lived in Iran and Egypt and Morocco otherwise you know this was my first time in Europe and and living there pretty much permanently. And uh, I was delighted. And I also had an English teacher in high school who, uh, the American School of Paris, who was uh, the great art historian Michael Branson, mm-hmm. who went on to become a New York Times art critic, believe it or not, years later, and who is now publishing a biography of David Smith. He's a Getty scholar. He's a professor at Bard. I mean, he is a, one of the really famous sort of curators, art historians of America. And this guy, you know, he, he was living in Paris and he was my English teacher in high school. And so here I am, this teenager who is being taught, you know, Henry James and Hemingway by Michael Branson. But Michael Brenson is also someone who obviously loves art. And so he really transmitted the love of art. But the question that you're asking me about, when did I become aware of the overlap? Yeah, because as you're you're talking at the moment, we're kind of still, I feel that we are still in the realms of you 
going to the Louvre and the Musée d'Orsay and the lesser-known museums and some of the, just the beauty and architectural beauty of the city and the cultural kind of vibe that sort of shimmers off the pavements of Paris to a certain extent. You're walking gaily along the Seine there, loving everything. I am. But there's a point, as you say in the book, that suddenly you kind of, you don't get hit between the eyes by it, but it's a slow realisation that there's more to it than than just beauty and more to it than just the trickiness of patronage and some of the things we talked about in the introduction. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, when, you, when you're in France and you're confronted with culture, I think politics becomes very, very obvious very soon. Mm-hmm. And it became pretty obvious to me quite early on because culture and politics are very much at the forefront of what the government does and what the government budgets do. And of course, you know, in my childhood or late or teens or whatever, there was François Mitterrand, who, of course, all of you know, the president of France at the time, who launched at the very start of his presidency these very, very ambitious grands projets, of which the, the Louvre Pyramid is one. The other one was the Bastille Opera. Yeah. And there was a massive controversy when the Bastille Opera was inaugurated. There was a huge hoo-ha. There was all this coming and going and administrations and managements of that opera house changing. The right wing squealing about this horrific edifice on the very place where the Bastille was, was overtaken, you know. So here you are, you know, it's the Bastille, it's the French Revolution, and it's an opera house. So for me, the overlap of culture and politics, it was like very, very clear, very early. Early on. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. interesting starting starting with France. You kind of end, well, not end up there, but you kind of address how different nation states in contemporary art and in contemporary politics have dealt with controversies and scandals and, and things um, in the book. I was kind of thought we might end up at France, but we started with it. So let's go with it because because okay. you're right. It's an interesting thing. Politics and culture at a certain, I was going to say, at a certain level of French society. But it's through more layers of society, is it like the writing through a stick of rock than perhaps it is in the UK or in the United States? There is yes. perhaps a more of an understanding that culture and politics go hand in hand like a well, a tough and tricky marriage, but nonetheless a marriage. Yeah. It's a different kind of kettle of fish in, in the Anglosphere, isn't it? Somehow? Yeah. I think it's, it's to do with the educational system. I think mm. um, average primary school in France is of a pretty good standard. And I think that children are taught these sorts of things at an early age. And so people grow up kind of expecting the government to spend, you know, the French government at one point was spending 1% of its budget on culture. I think that that percentage has diminished, but that's a lot of money to spend on culture every year. And there was no controversy about it. Whereas here in Britain, as you know, you know, the prime minister, you know, in general, doesn't really go want to be seen at the Royal Opera House, because then the headlines will say, oh, you know, these toffs and all oh, uh, the high and mighty, etc. Whereas Emmanuel Macron, you know, he will absolutely go to the and opening of Angela an Merkel, who's and Angela always Merkel. seen at Bayreuth at the opening yes. of the Wagner um, yes. season. Yeah. And she was there at the inauguration of the Elbe Philharmonie. She has been seen. Yeah, I mean, so, so I think the whole issue, the, the real issue at the bottom of all this is, should taxpayers be paying for culture? In France, the answer is yes, why not? Absolutely, no question. In Britain, I think to some extent the answer is yes as well. But in the United States of America, it's a really fraught point. Yeah. And as you know, that's why a lot of uh, museums there are uh, don't get federal funding. And it's tough. I mean, your opening words to your book are art is power. 
Yeah. And this is this kind of goes right through this. You might say in a system like the French system, people are are literally and therefore culturally and socially invested in it, intellectually invested in it. In the United States, on the other side of the coin, yeah, these privately funded institutions right. have to sort of behave like with public outreach programs that often get it exceptionally wrong. And these are some of the big examples, especially in the contemporary art world. Yes, in in mm-hmm. your book. Yeah. Now I want to get onto a couple of those during our conversation, Farah. Okay. But maybe we can put those scandals that we're going to talk about, and I use, I mean, they are scandals, but they are deeply intellectually fascinating. And they're not just tittle-tattle, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's all very complex. This isn't, yeah, this yeah. isn't who's in the broom cupboard with whom. This is cuts right to the sort of core of the idea of funding and what art means and all the rest of it. But let's put that, let's frame that picture in the kind of history of censorship. We mm-hmm. talked about this in the introduction and, you know, popes and archbishops and stuff getting um, in all kinds of a quiver about certain artists and all the rest of it. Has censorship always been sort of part of art due to its, you know, the idea of who's paying for it due to its, you know, mm-hmm. its sort of basis in patronage? Yes. I mean, I think definitely you hit, you hit the nail on the head. It's all about... I hit the nail on the head, but with one of the longest questions in recorded radio history. Sorry about no that. No problem. <laughs> I do the same. No, the censorship thing is all about who's paying, right? So in the days when, I suppose, the papacy was paying for art, mm. artist of the stature of Michelangelo had his work censored, believe it or not, by the Catholic Church. Of course, as we know, a pope commissioned Michelangelo, maybe one more than one. Um, he was commissioned by one or two popes to to create the Sistine Chapel. And The Last Judgment, which is the second part of his um, masterpiece, you know, the work inside yeah. the uh, the Sistine Chapel, had some elements that as the church became more and more conservative and as the church started, there was the Counter-Reformation. Reformation, Counter-Reformation. Yeah, the yeah, Counter-Reformation yeah. made the church very, very nervous about some of the, some of the images in The Last Judgment by Michelangelo. And uh, they waited until he died to censor him, but they censored him. They had a guy come in, another painter come in, and put clothes on a couple of the figures and actually repaint two of the figures by Michelangelo. I mean, who would who <laughs> yeah. would dare? The goal. Would, the goal of it, <laughs> the absolute goal of it, as you say. Yeah. And the reason was that they were... You know, there was a saint, I think it was a male saint, and there was a female possibly saint. And they were in this kind of position that might have suggested sodomy. So, you know, Il Braghettone, Volterra, who was the the painter who actually had the job of repainting Michelangelo, repainted those figures. And it was sort of like those two men are standing a bit close to each other. Um, (laughs) It was a man and a woman. Okay. Yeah, it was a man and a woman. And, um, yeah, so... You know, who would dare in their right mind today go and repaint Michelangelo? I mean, it is just inconceivable. Yeah. So as long as the money was coming from those kinds of people, they had the power to censor and they did. But then as democracy made inroads, as, you know, in in today's world, with liberal democracy being sort of the dominant uh, system in the West... It's you and me. It's the people with the vote who have the power. Yeah. And so there is no more top-down censorship. Nowadays, the censorship is coming from the bottom up. The citizen has the vote and the citizen can basically express views and express political views and protest either directly through picketing, protesting or through social media. This huge bugle, this loud trombone that is now being used to keep museums 
very much on their toes. And now there is another form of censorship that we're seeing, and it's self-censorship by museums and art institutions who are worried that they are going to get picketed, that they're going to get picked apart and quote-unquote canceled, although that's not a word I use much in my book because, you know, it's just too loose. Yeah, there's but a e- lot. It's, it's yeah. yeah, and your book has got so many subtleties to examples and callbacks to history and all right. the rest of it. It feels like such a such a complete thing and such a kind of such a kind of essential primer. Thank um, you, for, thank you, Rob. For the kind of tricky, <laughs> the sort of tr- tightrope that one yeah. has to walk, especially as a as a museum director. That's a job that everyone used to want. That yeah, no one wants it exactly. Anymore, right? Exactly. So you brought it bang up to date wonderfully well, Farah. Now let's talk about the trumpet that everyone's got in their back mm-hmm. pocket, yeah. their smartphone. Can you give us some examples of how social media in the contemporary world, I'm thinking of kind of Dana Schutz's mm-hmm. controversial mm-hmm. work that was part of the Whitney um, yeah. Biennial in New York, mm-hmm. some of the ways in which social media has been corralled to the defense, offense, whatever, of contemporary works, of of artists, and sort of heading towards this awful kind of cancellation idea. Yeah, I mean, I think let's let's jump on that example yeah. that you came up with, Dana Schutz, because I think it's a fairly recent example. Uh, Dana did a painting of Emmett Till, who was a 14-year-old boy murdered in the 1950s because he walked into a grocery store where the owner was a young white woman. And, um, you know, he spent about a minute in the store, and no one really knows what he told this woman. But, you know, apparently he was trying to buy candy, and she later said that he grabbed her hand and flirted with her and grabbed her waist, etc., he was basically, you know, three or four days later, these two white men uh, grabbed him, uh, tortured him, brutalized him, and then they shot him in the head and they threw him in the river. His body was retrieved and his mother, uh, the body on show in an open casket. And Dana Schutz painted this photograph of the open casket taken in the 1950s. And was she, this she, a new, by the way, was this a news, was this a photograph in new circulation. It sounds yes, com- it was. Right. Yeah, yes, yeah. it was yeah. actually a photograph that was published with the permission of Mrs. Till in major magazines. And, yeah. and Dana saw the image and she created this painting in a way, as she said, out of empathy with uh, Emmett's mother. But of course, on the day, there was a protest, very peaceful protest by an African-American artist named Parker Bright saying, why is the Whitney uh, or why is this artist making money out of black pain? And he, and he stood in front of the painting with a T-shirt. He had slogans written on it. And, you know, he filmed himself on Facebook Live. It was a live stream, but it was a very peaceful and respectful demonstration, a protest. Another artist, uh, Hannah Black, who's a black British artist living, I believe, in Berlin, she seized on that, and she actually also on Facebook put out a letter co-signed by 30 artists who also she identified as non-white and saying that Dana Schutz had no right to be painting this subject and that the painting has to go. In other words, it had to be destroyed. And this, you know, was actually unleashed a complete furore. This went beyond viral. Everyone was commenting on it and opinion was split right down the middle. And I think most interestingly, commentators or African-American artists such as Kara Walker and um, Whoopi Goldberg flew to the defense of the artist and said to the petitioners, again, you know, the people who called for the painting's destruction, that what if somebody did that to you kind of thing. So there was definitely a furore around the painting, and 
definitely the furore was channeled via Facebook, via one of the main social media platforms. And uh, the moral of the story is that social media is an unbelievable channel of protest. But as one of the people in my book said, I think it was Daniel Birnbaum, the curator, um, it is a very kind of yes and no, yes or no. Are you with us or against us? You Everything's know. purely binary. It's I mean, binary. Art, art, out of all the different types of culture, yeah. they're all equally complex. But art is, is something that we never quite know the intention of the artist, even if they're living artists. Right. It's meant to be, you know, yeah. a little quicksilver. And so for, for art, painting, sculpture, whatever it might be, to be have, it, have to be understood purely in binary terms, also in terms of morality. Yeah. Art should, well, I don't know, I put it to you. I wonder, right. if, I wonder if you feel that art should have a, has any reason, has any job having a moral centre or not. I mean, it's not, it's, we're kind of down uh, to that almost, aren't we? I mean, yeah, we are. And I it's think. It's not a lecture, it's, a, it's an artwork, right? Not a lecture, it's an artwork, but I think that in our contemporary times, I think there has to be a a much more morality at the centre of an artwork than than was expected of an artist The public expect there to be, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, just think about it. When I was doing this article about Gauguin, which actually led to this book, I wrote an article about Gauguin, how how is his art being perceived in the post-Me Too era? And I had a lot of feminist voices in there saying, you know, that his um, living with and marrying, quote-unquote, 13- and 14-year-old girls is something needs to be discussed. We need to bring out the dirty stuff, etc. That article went completely viral. And the point I'm trying to get at is that one of the people said... If those paintings that Gauguin did and that all of us admire, uh, many of us admire, they're beautiful paintings of young Tahitian girls Mm. and they're half-clothed or not clothed. If those paintings were photographs and they were put out today by a living artist, that artist would not be able to show those photographs and that Mm -hmm. artist would be instantly condemned. And I think that there is much more morality expected of modern-day artists than was, of course, of somebody like Gauguin or somebody like anyone, you know, any artist that you can name, all the way up to the early 20th century and even the mid-20th century. It's a fascinating thing. I suppose history gives artists and their works, the art and the artists also, you know, should be able to be appreciated in different columns and a different sort of credit and loss column, right? I mean, we're talking, yeah. that's I mean, tough as well. I mean, Caravaggio is a murderer. Yeah. Gauguin was a perv. Exactly, you know, exactly. Take your pick. And I think I was thinking about it because I was trying to prepare for this. I mean, I was preparing for this podcast and I thought about it and I, and I realized that the farther away they are from us in history, like, mm. I mean, I lived in Rome for three and a half years and, you know, Caravaggio was really truly one of my gods while I was in Rome because when you live in Rome you walk into a church and there are Caravaggios um, in a chapel somewhere and there are several many you know you can go and walk look at them for free and I was surrounded by them and I would go visit them and I love Caravaggio and I worship him and there's nothing that's gonna stop me from worshiping Caravaggio but he did murder somebody Okay, yeah. he did go. You know, there was some brawl on. It's on, not all frescoes, Farah. It's not all frescoes <laughs> and and oil paintings. You yeah. know, and he got. He basically he was a fugitive from justice, and he died far away from Rome. And uh, the point is, if we had a modern day Caravaggio, if we had some artist today who turned around and shot somebody, yeah, I don't. You know, nobody would show his art. I wouldn't be admiring him. We would all be scratching our heads and saying. Oi, that's not on, you know. <laughs> I want 
to talk about museums as well. I mean, no institutions perhaps in the world face such a kind of, apart from the BBC possibly, as such a fight for survival, I suppose, than the major art institutions, which felt like such sort of ivory towers, sort of marble-pillared palaces, indestructible places of great oil paintings and, as we know, sort of stolen booty from colonies and places yeah. all over the world. But if we look at their 21st century arising of their old stuff, they're, they're modernising or they're, they're yeah. you know, writing new wall texts, putting it into historical context, realising that not all their viewers are middle-class white people. Right, <laughs> yeah. The, we didn't all have the same education. Yeah. How is that going? I mean, I know you kind of mentioned this in your book, so I'm, gonna, I'm afraid I'm going to ask you a very broad kind of question. Yeah. The diversifying of the collection, permanent mm-hmm. collection, and buying non-white artists, the diversifying of the staff, hiring mm-hmm. non-white staff, and recalibrating what those old things, whether stolen or otherwise, those old things mean. How is that generally kind of going in what we call the West, I suppose? US, UK, France, and Germany. Mm-hmm. It's a huge kind of tide that needs to be yes, turned. Yes, I actually would go as far as calling it as a, a revolution. Mm. We are witnessing something of a revolution on the back of these two colossal social movements that were the, the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement. And all, both of those have you know, pretty much happened in the past five years. That's not a long time. But in the last five years, since we had the Weinstein scandal explode in 2017, And since we had the killing of George Floyd, those two events have absolutely transformed the museum landscape across the West. I think that we've had one museum... I mean, that's been a catalyst to change that's already happening, or that suddenly made everyone kind of look in the mirror? No, change was happening, but I mean, I spoke to many people who were involved, and they'd say, like, you'd get some Arts Council, you know, directive going out. It was called Decibel, let's say. And they'd say, okay, yeah, we need to bring in more, you know, people of colour, and we need to bring in... You met Frank, everyone's (laughs) met Frank, or something, right? It's embarrassing. Yeah, Yeah. it would come and go. I mean, there would be kind of waves of interest in this. And lip service, as one person I spoke to, uh, Aaron Cesar of the Delfina Foundation, who witnessed these phases, Aaron said, you know, they'd pay lip service to this sort of thing. But you wouldn't actually see systematic, you know, kind of deep-seated change. Mm-hmm. Since the 2017, you know, in the last four or five years, we are seeing huge change across the board. Look around you. How many exhibitions, solo exhibitions of female artists have you seen who went completely unnoticed during their lifetime or were given a solo exhibition, their first in a museum when they were 99? Yeah, yeah. Or 98. I mean, you know, look at commercial galleries signing you know, signing up, signing to up to well, yeah. si- signing up to some artists. It's you know, it's like we won't n- name names, perhaps in the gallery world, but you know, it's bizarre to see people kind of we're happy to announce. You go, oh great, and you scroll down, and they're like, and they're you know, born in 1928 or something. Yes, <laughs> yes. A hot, hot new thing on the block. Yes, and well, it's like people there, because there has been there for, has been so much yeah. erasure. Yeah, Rob, there has yeah. just been so much erasure. I mean, I'm not getting on a soapbox here. I don't do soapbox. But I'm just looking at the two sides of this thing and looking actually if you tot up the number of women and the number of artists who were non-white who had exhibitions, solo exhibitions at major museums, it's you're not going to come up with a big number. We all knew that art was unequal. 
right? Mm. We all knew that. But we didn't know how unequal it was. And that's really the, the whole point of this book, is that there's a revolution or an evolution going on. And, you know, the kind of inequities of the past are being corrected. And do you see any kind of bright ideas coming forward in ways of restructuring the commercial art world and or the museum world and all the rest of it. I mean, people are looking to trustees of the museums and saying, well, when you've got a lot of rich old white folk, mm-hmm. you know, they're not necessarily going to care about this kind of stuff. And then you've got the directors. You've got there's such a sort of house of cards, I suppose, or sort of a pyramid shaped power structure. As with so many things, so many corporate entities of which museums have become so large, they almost are these days. Do you see any kind of bright shoots or any kind of best in practice from certain museums here, there, anywhere that are doing this that other other places can learn from? And indeed, the public can kind of feel kind of safe in the knowledge that they're visiting somewhere that's kind of got it right. Well, to be honest, I think when you look across the board at museums, uh, major museums of modern art, you know, around around the Western mm. world, I think we're seeing many, many examples of that, of a recalibration of the yeah. kinds of shows they put on. I mean, just think of the MoMA Rehang. Mm-hmm. The MoMA Rehang is something quite revolutionary. I mean, you know, after having this long sort of trajectory of isms from, you know, futurism to Dadaism to Cubism to et cetera, ism, 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 which were dominated by, you know, European men, okay, MoMA has completely done a total revamp or a rehang, and you have this big room in which you have Les Demoiselles d'Avignon of Picasso hanging adjacent to Faith Ringgold's painting, vast painting, mm-hmm. and that painting is basically was done maybe 50, 60 years after the, the Demoiselles, and it sort of was inspired by Les Demoiselles, yeah. or it was inspired by Guernica. But to juxtapose those two artists, I mean, that is something quite stunning, uh, striking. And the most important thing is that MoMA is actually redoing that. They're revisiting that rehang regularly. So the canon, the canon, which we thought was something fixed in stone, is being revisited regularly. As Anne Temkin of MoMA, who I interviewed for the book, said, the genie is out of the bottle. Yeah. And it's kind of as an art lover and as a fellow kind of culture journalist, I feel like it's heartening to feel that culture is a work in progress from sort of ninth century altarpieces yes. to Faith Ringgold. Yeah. They're on the same they're on the same line. You know, it's part of the same thing. It's kinda of yeah. not it's it's heartening to feel that that someone's clicked refresh on this page of, of Yes, of, of because art, art is not a fixed thing. It's not inert. It's something that is constantly, as you say, it's a living thing. Yeah. And art is defined by our relationship to it. Museums are living things. They're almost like movie theaters. They're almost like newspapers. Yeah. Museums are a kind of slow version of a newspaper. We could do a whole series just on this, this yeah. whole thing, can we? Yeah, I mean, it's such rich pickings, Farah. Thank you so much for coming in. I had my a, pleasure. About thirty-five more questions yeah. just written, just written subtly on the inside of my palm of my hand for you. We'll have to, we'll have to do this some other day. Yeah. Um, Farah Nayari, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Rob, for inviting me. Thank you.
And that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much to my guest, Farah Nayeri. Her book, Take Down Art and Power in the Digital Age, is published on the 25th of January by Astra House. And she's doing lots of talks and live casts and things. So we recommend you Google Farah Nayeri and Take Down. And Monocle on Culture was produced by Sophie Monaghan Coombs. And our sound engineer is Steph Chongu. I've been Robert Bound, and we'll be back at the same time next week. But for the time being, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.